On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking at creation itself. Father Paul Robinson, the publisher of Angelus Press and prior of St. Isidore's in Denver, Colorado, will look at the theory of evolution. Can a Catholic hold that evolution and creation are both consistent with each other? We'll answer questions like, can non-life turn into life? Can that life then turn into intelligent life? Is there room in the theory of evolution for God? We've already seen that God exists in previous episodes, so how did he bring about life on Earth? And are we able to know for sure? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, we'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Robinson for episode number three of our Apologetic series. Father Robinson, thank you for joining us yet again on our next episode here on Apologetic series. Well, today we're talking about uh, one main topic. Uh, we're This is a continuation of what we started talking about last time about how to be an atheist. And one of the ways to be an atheist uh, is definitely to have in your back pocket the theory of evolution, that God is not necessary, that that all of the, there is no need for a creator. So this is really going to be mainly focused on evolution. Is that right, Father? That's correct. That's correct. So um, if one of the main objections against the existence of God is that nature explains itself, um, atheists know that that's the most compelling case they they can make uh, for God not existing is basically that we he, he's not needed to cause anything that we see around us. There's there's no evidence of a higher cause. We look around us and, and basically the total explanation for what we see is in nature. And of course, um, Darwin's theory of evolution is, is one of the main tools that atheists use in, in order to account for nature's supposed self-explanation. And uh, Ray, uh, Richard Dawkins, he, he famously said that um, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <clears throat> he wants to say that, that effectively, um, when we look out on the, the, the natural world, uh, we don't see some sort of purposeful order being placed there. Um, and Darwin's explanation of the natural world seeks to say that, that effectively um, all of the diversity of, of animals and plants that we see uh, just sprang from purely natural forces, um, and therefore there's, there's no need for a god to, to, to create. Um, now, Darwin himself wasn't necessarily an atheist. All I'm saying is that uh, effectively, yeah, atheists often will want to use uh, Darwin's theory in, in order to support atheism. And, you know, I, I just want to, to repeat once more, and I'm, I, I'm saying this over and over and over again because it is necessary to repeat this, but, but that even if, even if um, Darwin's theory of evolution explained a lot of the diversity of biological form in the world around us, and, and the Catholic Church has never been opposed to the theory of evolution as such. Um, but, but even if it, it explains all of the, this diversity, 
we would still need a first cause of existence. We would, we would still need a first cause of the existence of contingent beings. It's clear that the beings around us are contingent. And <clears throat> we, we would simply say that, that um, if, if Darwin's theory was correct, it would also point to some sort of plan on the part of God um, uh, that, that God would have just preloaded nature, pre-programmed nature um, to evolve in a certain direction. He would have embedded in nature the capacity to evolve uh, new life forms from, from old life forms, or more complicated life forms from less complicated life forms. But be, because of, of, this, of this fact that either way, you know, God's glory is, is going to be supported, then, you know, it, it, neither, it doesn't, it's not going to attack the faith as such. And so we, it's really up to science. We, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about science today, Andrew, to, to evaluate this theory of evolution. Um, but if, if, in fact, Darwin's theory is, is, is true and uh, a lot of the diversity of biological form is uh, developed over a long period of time through random mutation and natural selection, um, then atheists would have something more of a case uh, that, that nature explains itself. We don't need God to explain anything. So we're going to be talking a lot about science, like you said, uh, Father. I studied art history, so uh, I'm going to put my thinking cap on, and I will try to keep up with you on the science part of things. Um, but I guess we start with with just the very basic building blocks uh, of of life. So, are we going to be taking kind of the position of the atheists on on this, or are we going to be taking the position of arguing against the atheists on on this episode, Father? Yeah, so what what I want to do is is just try to explain what an atheist has to find in reality. If if he wants to claim that nature explains okay. itself, um, what is he going to have to find? When when we look out over over the natural world and we as uh, human beings have a rational mind, observe the thing around around us, we, we three see three basic ontological levels, three levels of being, of complexity of being. Uh, first of all, there's the bridge, the gap between the inanimate and inanimate world and the animate world, between the non-living and the living, um, between molecules, uh, chemicals, and so on, and even like bacteria. Then um, there's there's the the gap between the the animals and human beings. Uh, human beings possess something that animals do not, and that is self-consciousness. Uh, the, the rational power, the power to understand concepts, the power to to know the, the idea of self, that I am a separate entity from other things, and so on. So you have non-living, you've got um, the living non-rational world, and then you've got the living rational world. And if atheists want to make a compelling case that, that nature explains itself, the best they can do is, is to say that, that all these three levels simply develop by natural law, that, that somehow nature is directed to produce these things. Um, and as I say, I mean, even, even if they were able to, to prove that to us, it would still imply a certain order, it would imply a certain intelligence embedded into nature for it to continually progress in an upward direction. Uh, we would we would still have to say, well, where does this come from? Where 
why is it pre-programmed to develop in that way? But that would be the best case that they could make. So we're going to we're just going to try to look at mainly those first two levels. Um, I'm not only going to go into the question of how an atheist might explain self-consciousness um, or free will, and we saw in the previous podcast that that um, logical ideas who, who are consistent with their own position, they tried to even deny the existence of free will, um, which is a really, really tough sell, I think, for, for most everybody. Um, to deny yeah. your, your free will basically shuts down the, the meaning of any conversation or, or rational conversation. So the first thing we need to look at is, is um, the difference between life and non-life. And, and to say, is, is that different? Um, can that difference between non-life and life, can it be bridged by purely natural forces? Um, the theory of, uh, so-called theory of abiogenesis. Abiogenesis is the idea that life can come from non-life. Um, it's, it's almost like spontaneous generation of, of the Middle Ages where and we have a piece of meat just sitting there, and then all of a sudden flies start to appear, and they, people conclude, well, the flies must come from meat. Um, well, uh, we, uh, we, are, we are very privileged living in the 21st century because we have so much information uh, about life that we did not have before. So, you know, we can, we can sort of cut the, the people in the Middle Ages some slack, uh, b because they didn't have this information. Even the people of Darwin's time in the 19th century, we can cut them some, some slack as well because they, did, they also did not understand the complexity of life nearly to the degree that, that we do today. And this, this has to be understood very, very cle clearly that, that there is a massive, massive gap in, in complexity, in order, in functionality between the least of the living things and the highest of the non-living things. So I just want to share with you a quotation about this from a scientist called Michael Denton. His name is Michael Denton. He says, we now know not only of the existence of a break between the living and the non-living world, but also that it represents the most dramatic and fundamental of all the discontinuities of nature between a living cell and the most highly ordered non-biological system, such as a crystal or a snowflake, there is a chasm as vast and absolute as it is possible to conceive. The, the, just an immense distance in order and complexity between the highest of the non-living and the lowest of the living. And in, in Darwin's time, they, they just thought of of living things and, and the cell is basically a, a blob of goo. You know, it's just kind of like jello. <laughs> they knew that there was a cell there, but they couldn't see into it uh, as we do today. And they just thought of it as kind of amorphous and, and it's very, very basic. Um, and, and so Darwin's theory, strictly speaking, only it covers the transition from um, living things to living things, from the less simpler living things to to more complex living things. Um, but people over time, they, they started to say, well, if, if Darwin's theory works for, for the uh, gap between simple life forms and complex life forms, 
What about the, the gap between non-living and living? So people also pr propose this theory of uh, biogenesis, and and um, I think we, we're all familiar with with the uh, phrase of primordial soup, you know, that they propose. And right. Some sometime in the early history of the Earth, you, you have some sort of uh, swamp type area in which all these native chemicals are are lurking, and it gets struck with lightning and and it's sort of magically the, the first cell emerges from um, a fortuitous sequence of chemical events there in the primordial soup. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, we, we are very much in a position today to evaluate in a very scientific manner um, the capacity of nature to produce life from non-life um, and the conclusion is that there is absolutely no ability in nature. Um, there, there's, there's no, not, not, with scientists really trying hard to find some possible bridge, like you say, this sequence of events might produce uh, life from non-life. We, there's, we haven't even come close. Okay. So even even at this very basic level here, when we're just starting this, like you've been saying, this this chasm, this this uh, this gap between living and non-living, it it really can't be done. I mean, even with advances in science, have have scientists been able to figure out a way to make even some of the basic building blocks of a cell or proteins or anything like that out of non-living things? Yeah. The scientists, we, we certainly can't produce life. I mean, we, as intelligent agents with all our technology, we certainly can't produce life. Um, but we, what, what we have to do to understand why it's impossible for uh, living things to come from non-living things, we, we have to look at the basic building blocks of, of all living things. And this is something that we have to understand up front, is that all living things, from, from the simplest to the most complex, every single living thing that we know of works on the cell. The cell is the basic building okay. block of life, um, regardless of what life form that is. And so then we look at the cell and we say, all right, how complex is the cell? Would it be possible for a primordial soup? Would we expect a cell to form in a primordial soup that's fortuitously situated? Um, and let's just talk a little bit about what goes on in the cell. The cell, uh, as we know today, is an immensely complex factory uh, producing molecular uh, machines to sustain uh, life's process. So the, the building block of the cell, the main worker in the cell, is the protein. So, the, the simplest of the cells has about you know, 482 different types of, of proteins. And each protein is, is built okay. from, from what are called amino acids. And there's, there's different types of amino acids. There's, there's the, like what's called a left-handed amino acid and a right-handed amino acid. So the proteins that work in living things, they are only formed from left-handed amino acids. So that's, that's one specification already. Um, and then also, there's 20 different types of amino acids. 
But when you form a protein, what do you do is you, you assemble, you put amino acids, a certain, certain different types of amino acids. You concatenate them one next to another. And then these amino acids then go into um, a molecular machine called a ribosome, and they, they form the protein, they fold the protein, those amino acids together, and they chemically bond to make the protein. The protein will then be able to go on it and perform its specific function in the cell. And so okay. before we can see if, if, if we're going to ask if um, the, the living can come from the non-living, we, we have to say, would we expect nature or do we find nature forming proteins other than in cells? So we know that they're formed in cells. There's tons of proteins being formed all the time as we speak right now. We've got, you know, 10 trillion cells in our body. And um, there's, of course, the DNA, which is like the database that contains the information, the code that, that instructs uh, the cell how to form the protein. So, so the, the proteins are formed and they go off and they do their business, right? But if you're going to form like a single protein, a lot of times, I mean, like the, the most basic protein might have 150 amino acids next to one another. And for, for every single one of them, you, you've got to have the left-handed amino acid of the specific type, of one of the, the 20 specific types, um, in order for the protein, the proper protein to, to form as it's supposed to be. And so, um, yeah, we, we ask ourselves the question, do proteins form in the wild? Is, 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 does nature have a tendency to form proteins? Do uh, amino acids just sort of like to get together in primordial soup type situations and, and form themselves in the protein? Um, and the answer is no. The answer is no. Um, so people, people have done this research. People have done this research. Okay. In other words, they've, they looked at all the possible combinations of amino acids. It's like there's 20 different types of amino acids. There's left-handed, there's right-handed. And a certain number of those combinations actually form proteins. They look at all the different types of proteins that exist in, in living things. And, and they say, okay, how many of, of the combinations of amino acids actually form proteins? If, if, if you understand what I'm saying, there's, there's what's called this mm -hmm. combinatorial space. We took 150 slots and we took different types of, of left-handed left amino acids. We just threw them in those slots. We went through all the combinations, you know. We said, how many of them would form proteins? Um, it turns out that, that there's very, very, very few combinations that actually form functional proteins. It, um, the, the, the number of functional proteins that exist in that whole space of all the, all the different combinations is very, very small. Uh, let me just, just quote myself, uh, <laughs> something I say in my book. Um, even if we had tons of amino acids in a puddle and started stirring it and striking it with lighten, the chances of us getting any functional protein would be 1 in 10 to the 164th power. Um, so 1 over 1 and 164 zeros. Um, that's, that's it. Even if we're, we're just assuming 
even that amino acids would happen to be colliding into one another and wanting to form a string, you know, in the palm. Okay. So that number represents the proportion of functional bonded amino acid sequences, the ones that turn into proteins, to total possible amino acid sequences. We have to hit that jackpot 482 times in short order and it, to get some of the raw material for the simplest cell on Earth. We would have to form 482 of those. So one in a 10 to the 164th power chance of getting the right amino acid sequence. And then that process, that has to happen 482 times just for us to get the raw materials for a cell, much less to coordinate all the raw materials with one another and form DNA. Um, it's just wow, pretty much zero. It's, it's mind-bogglingly complex. Um, but in the end, there, you know, it turns out in, in the wild, amino acids don't like to hang out anyway. Um, they're not inclined to collide into in one another and form proteins. It just doesn't happen. That's, that's okay. why we have to eat um, living things. Or I don't, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn, but, but um, yeah, we, we, living things are the only things that produce proteins, I guess is what I want to say. Okay. So something that's already living has to be able to produce it. It's, it's like you said, the, the chances of it happening from a random series of events over time, astronomically large, probably beyond yeah. astronomically large. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just absolutely no reasonable expectation whatsoever that we can even come close to, to assembling the raw materials. Um, much less to coordinate those raw materials uh, with one another. But, I mean, we're only scratching the, the surface of the complexity. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about DNA as well. Um, you know that okay. in 1953, um, Francis Crick and James Watson there in England, they, they discovered the structure of our genetic code. Um, and that it was a double helix um, structure. And that, that this double helix structure, it, it contains the, the, gene the, the code that um, our body uses to produce us <laughs> on a regular basis and, and regenerate us. Um, as, as I mentioned, DNA is like the database. It contains all the instructions uh, that, that make our body what it is. And there's these processes going on all the time in our cell to continually um, produce, for instance, the protein. Uh, one thing that the DNA does is it contains uh, the code necessary to instruct the cell how to produce the proteins necessarily necessary to sustain the cell. Um, those 482 different types of proteins or or however many proteins are in a, in a given cell. So the, um, the process of producing a single protein in the cell is just amazing. It's extraordinary. Um, so you, you have on the spine of, of the DNA, you, you have what are called nucleotide bases. 
you know, you, we, we talked about acids, and on the other side, there's bases. Um, I think we kind of remember that from our, our basic chemistry. Um, yeah. These, so, so the, uh, the DNA contains bases and four different types of bases that are given letters A, C, G, and T. And what's interesting is um, that in the, in the production of a protein, what happens in the cell is, is that the DNA is pulled apart and there's a certain strand of DNA that, that is copied on, onto something called RNA. So the RNA, a, a new string is produced that, that contains the, the nucleotide bases of, of, that, of that section of DNA. So that section contains the instructions for producing a protein. The, the cell has a process by where it, it takes apart the DNA double helix. It copies a certain section. It clips the, the RNA, the copy, and, th and that RNA then goes into a molecular machine where, where the, the nucleotide bases are interpreted. Um, and and it, it's what, what's really absolutely astounding is, is that it's really a computer code. Um, so there's, hmm. there's this messenger RNA that, that comes and it reads three of the nucleotide bases. And, and based on the sequence of those three nucleotide bases, it summons a certain amino acid. So it, it reads the first part, you know, one, two, three, summons a uh, an amino acid, then four, five, six, summons an amino acid until finally, you know, if, if, there's, if there's 150 amino acids, it's got all the amino acids lined up, the right amino acids to form the protein because it's taken that particular section of code from the DNA. Um, and then it's, once it has that string oh. of amino acids, then, then those amino acids, that string of amino acids have to go off into, um, as I explained, the, the ribosome, which, which helps the, the amino acids fold into the right form. Because the, the protein not only has to have those amino acids, it has to be in a certain shape. And if it's not the right shape, it's not gonna do its work in the cell. It has to attach itself to, to certain areas in the cell and it's not the right shape, it's not going to be able to attach. So it has to fold into a certain shape, and then there's another miracle machine that does that. Um, and and that's, just, that's just one protein. But what, what we have to reflect upon is this fact that the DNA contains the equivalent of a computer code um, that is interpreted by the cells of every single living thing on this planet. Um, that it's, it's not, in other words, it's not a mere chemical reaction, but somehow every cell knows what type of amino acid to summon based on the sequence of the nucleotide bases. And I mean, you know, the, the only thing that produces code is an intelligent mind. That, that's the only thing right. in our repeated experience that's capable of producing computer code. It's not just more, mere laws of physics going on here. Right. And someone could say maybe, you know, you could you could look at like artificial intelligence these days is making all sorts of advances. Artificial intelligence can create code. But you need someone to create 
the rules for the artificial intelligence to work in the first place. So that doesn't really answer it either. So there's nothing that's just spontaneously generating this type of code and complexity just by itself. Right. And I mean, if, if we if we come upon um, a, a laptop in the woods, you know, and we and we open it up and we push the power button and it just starts doing stuff. <laughs> We're we're not going to say, wow, it's amazing what the trees and the rabbits have done. You know, <laughs> we're, right, we're obviously right. going to say, um, well, th this is this is produced by an intelligent mind. And what I'm saying is that when you unpack the tree and you unpack the rabbits, you find something much more complex even than what you find in the laptop. And so, I mean, if, if we know a laptop yeah. must be programmed by by an intelligent mind, when of course. It, it, it makes all the more sense for a rabbit to be programmed by an intelligent mind because it's even uh, the, the DNA is an even more right. complex code than, than our computer program. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm I'm following you so far. This is outrageously yeah. complex, but I'm yeah. I'm getting it. Yes. I'm with you. And 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 there is there's also a mutual dependency between the DNA and the protein. So you've got to have the DNA code in order to produce the protein. And and what is what are the things that work to produce DNA? It's the protein. So, so in other words, the proteins build DNA and DNA contains the code to produce the protein. So if you're gonna have this happen in nature, it has to happen all at once, it has to be produced all at once. You can't just have proteins floating around because you, to produce the first cell, you have to produce the thing that produces the protein as well as the proteins produce the DNA at the same time right yeah right okay so, so definitely a yeah. chicken and egg scenario they both have to yeah. be there okay yeah yeah um so that's that, that's that's basically um all that i would i would like to mention about uh life coming from non-life it's it's just there's it, it, it's not reasonable to think that, that that could ever happen based on what we know uh, life is, the complexity of every single form of life. Okay. So that's life and non-life. So let's just say, Father, let's, I guess let's give people who uh, hold to evolutionary theory benefit of the doubt. And let's say that over the course of 25 billion years, somehow this all did happen. Everything that you said, somehow there's the one in 40 quadrillion chance that it actually did happen what then well then maybe evolution is real right evolutionary theory we could say well uh, um yeah as they say there's no chance <laughs> there's no chance but um okay what, what about what about if if we say um you know to be honest some, some of the atheists say they realize this, this complexity this impossibility explain life and so someone like francis crick himself who discovered the dna uh, molecule he he said well maybe something uh maybe maybe life was seeded on the planet by aliens uh he he gave it the fancy name of directed panspermia maybe way back in our past aliens came and seeded the planet with life and then from there we have all the different life forms develop um so you know it's just sort of kicking the can down the road and you would have to ask well where did the where did the aliens come from where did where did that life come you still have to get from okay. non-life yeah. to life <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. Right. So let's let's uh, let's then look look at Darwin's theory uh, proper. What what Darwin specifically proposed as a way to explain the development of more complex life forms from less complex life forms, and and see if his theory uh, it has sufficient explanatory power that it provides okay. a su sufficient and true cause for this diversity of life forms. Um, so, yeah, Richard Dawkins thinks that it does. Um, Richard Dawkins says, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Um, he thinks that it explains everything in the biological world and that there's no real purpose in the biological world. It's just stuff just happens fortuitously. And that's why we have dogs and cats and, and lions and ostriches and things. So what, okay. we, what we have to do first, Andrew, is, is explain um, what Darwin's theory is, the, the mechanics of Darwin's theory. So, um, <clears throat> Darwin was, was very familiar with what humans can do by breeding, that, that we can breed different species of animals. Uh, and we, we all know how that happens. If, if you want uh, a dog with floppy ears, you, you take the dogs with the bigger ears and you start to breed them. And you, every time you get a dog with bigger ears, you isolate the dog and you have those dog breeds. And slowly but surely over time, you've, you've got a dachshund. You know, I mean, you, you've, got, you've got a dog that, that's... Um, has the, the genetic characteristic that you're desiring. And we, we call that right. um, artificial breeding or artificial selection. And Darwin said to himself, huh, I mean, if, if human beings can create such different species of dog by, by isolating populations of dogs, maybe, maybe nature is able to do that. What, what if nature is, is able to um, somehow isolate animals and then produce different types of animals by the fact that they're isolated. If it could, we would have something called natural selection. Um, it's, it's kind of a metaphor that he used for the process of evolution um, because not really, there's no real selection involved. Uh, it's not like nature is sitting right. there, you know, my mother nature is somehow sitting on a rock in the woods and, and choosing the animals that are going to be isolated. Um, it's just a metaphor. It, um, and, and the metaphor comes from Darwin's idea that, that nature selects by a process of survival of the fittest. That um, when you have a, a, a bunch of animals isolated from one another, then the ones who survive with certain genetic characteristics are, are basically the ones who are the fittest. Um, they're, they're the ones who have survival capabilities and there's some characteristic in them that, that enables them to survive. And that's why he speaks of natural selection, that nature selecting them. So I just want to um, give a quote from, again, from my book about <clears throat> um, how he got his idea for natural selection from the Anglican minister Malthus. I think we've probably heard of of Malthusian theory, he was uh, Malthus was was a man who looked at all the resources on the earth 
And he says, look, there's a limited number of resources and there's all these humans competing for the resources. Um, and unless we do something about it, unless we reduce the population, um, then we're not going to have enough uh, resources for, for people. Um, and so maybe we should just let the poor die, um, I, I think is what, what he proposed. Um, so here's the quote. Malthus held that human populations grow continually until they hit a certain threshold which matches the available supply of food. At that point, a competition ensues among humans, with some humans acquiring food and surviving, and others failing to get food and perishing. Darwin took Malthus's idea for human populations and applied it to all of nature. There are only a limited number of food resources available to plants and animals on this planet, and food resources cannot be shared. As such, there is constant competition among life forms to sustain and propagate life. In such a competition, the stronger and hardier went out and survived. Those who remain have been, quote-unquote, selected by nature, and then nature, after randomly arranging life's conditions, has then proceeded to eliminate life forms unable to survive in those conditions while retaining those able to survive. So Darwin um, is, is making some assumptions about nature, and, and that is that, that nature, that there's this, this really intense competition in nature for resources among, among life forms, and that some survive and some die over time, and that those who survive are actually better and superior than those who are not divided. If they survived, it was because they must have some characteristic that makes them superior than the ones who died. And so over time, you get more and more complex life forms evolve. Okay. It's making yeah. sense so far. Um, okay. <laughs> but, well, I guess we're going to get to, we're going to get to that. All right. I'll hold my question. Okay. Yeah. And this theory was um, really hailed in time. There was a lot of enthusiasm for it uh, because there were geologists who were starting to explain natural processes of, of formations that appear on Earth um, that, that they expected they, they could make models and of how the formations on Earth happened over long periods of time. Also, astronomers were able to hypothesize about the formation of stars and galaxies. Um, and this is all in the inanimate world, by the way, um, things changing in the inanimate world, which is very basic and very simple compared to life forms. And they said, okay, well, now, now Darwin is proposing a way for us to explain the, the biological world by merely natural causes. So he proposed this mechanism, um, but his, his theory still had to be tested, and they didn't have much information at that time. So here's how um, Michael B. Con comments on the lack of scientific information at that time. He said, Darwin did not show that apparently purposeful systems could be built by natural selection acting on a random variation. Rather, he just proposed that they might. His theory had yet to be tested at the profound depths of life. In fact, no one then even realized life had such depths. Darwin built a case with the best science available in the 19th century. The, the case was pretty strong for a few of his theory's multiple aspects, including the descent of modern organism from earlier ones. It was extremely weak for his proposed mechanism of evolution. A major reason for its weakness 
was that the science of Darwin's day had no understanding of the molecular foundation of life. Darwin did not understand genetics. He did not understand the cell. He did not understand DNA and, and so on. So what we need to do is we need to look at a couple of aspects of Darwin's theory. On the one hand, we, we need to look at his proposal of what's called common descent, the idea that all of the life forms that we see around us today ultimately derive from simpler life forms in the past. They descend, they're, they're like um, descendants of, of the earlier life forms through a long-term process of evolution. And then the other aspect of his theory that we have to look at is the um, actual capacity of random mutation and natural selection. When we observe life today, you know, in the 21st century, and we, we, we look at, at the changes that are ca capable of being produced in genetic code, um, do we see that nature is producing favorable changes and that the, the fittest are surviving such that we would expect uh, big changes to happen over long periods of time? So the, the first thing okay. is, is the question of whether we um, might ex see some signs of the animals and plants around us deriving from simpler life forms. And, and to check this, um, yeah, we, we have to say that there is a certain evidence for this. Um, there are certain clues that might point to some animals coming from other animals. One of these pieces of evidence is morphology. Um, and that, that is when we look <clears throat> at the bodies of animals, we can see certain similarities uh, among, among uh, all, all, all different animals. So, you know, the, the biologists, they have uh, a classification of, of the taxonomical category. Um, they, they classify all the animals. And the reason they're able to do that is because of the similarity between them. And, and one of the classifications is the phylum, which is like a body plant. And there's, there's just 36 different types of body plants in the animal kingdom. In other words, if you take all the animals that there are, there's only 36 different body types. And um, like we belong to the phylum of, of mammal, and um, yeah, actually mammal I think is a class, but but for all mammals, there's a similarity in our body types. Even even bats, <laughs> both we and bats share, for instance, seven cervical vertebrae. Um, we have we have a similar body type to bats, believe it or not. So if okay. if um, if we can if we can find these these similarities among body types, you might think, oh, well, maybe maybe the, the, this one animal that has the same type body type as another came from that other animal, for instance. Um, then the, the fossil record. The fossil record, when, when we go down into the layers of the Earth, which record a certain history of, of uh, life on Earth, we do see a progression of uh, less complex to more complex. In other words, the highest layers have more complex animals. As you get lower and lower into the layers, you get simpler and simpler and simpler um, to the point to where uh, there's, there's just sponges around in the Precambrian era. And before that, there is just plants. There's no animals. So you, you, you only have animals with vertebrae and stuff um, after a certain period of time towards the top. 
um, right here, you know, just let me read this. The, the, the first animals that appear are invertebrates. Then we have vertebrate fish, then reptiles, then birds, then non-placental mammals, then placental mammals, and then humans. This, this is the progression in the fossil record. Um, and if we see this progression from simpler to complex, you might think, oh, maybe the more complex came from the less complex. Maybe, maybe the, the bottom, the top layers derived from the bottom layers. Maybe. Then the third piece of evidence that they give, evolutionists would give for what's called common descent is DNA analysis. They compare the DNA of, of plants and animals to one another. And what, what they find is, is that, that plants that we would expect to be related to one another have more common, more DNA in common. And in animals, we expect to be uh, more related to one another have more DNA in common. Uh, whereas the things that are further apart um, that we expect to be very different, like the difference between an elephant and a daffodil, you know, their, their DNA is going to be quite, quite different from one another. Right. So, if there's a greater similarity of the DNA of, of mammals, then we might think, well, maybe maybe one animal is produced from another just, just by the modification of its DNA. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it yeah, seems just... to be that there's might be some compelling, at least logic behind this, um, this and you know this common ancestry so far, at least. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let Let me um just give you a quotation about the, the, the similarity of DNA. <clears throat> okay. um, proteins that did the same job were similar yet different between species, but became more different as the biological distance between the species increased. For example, a small protein called cytochrome C, which helps produce energy in the cell, was determined to be identical in humans and chimpanzees in all 104 of its amino acid positions. Between humans and dogs, there were 11 differences. Between us and tuna, 21 differences. Between people and moths, almost a third of the total positions differed. Between humans and yeast, almost a half of the positions differed. So what they do is they make a comparison. If they, they look at the proteins, the proteins that run in our cells. And they say, what are the amino acids that make up our protein? And how are they different? And they're, they're, they're comparing um, us with chimpanzees, us with dogs, us with tuna, and us with, with yeast and moths. And so as, as you get further away uh, to our body type, you know, there's, there's greater differences in our genetic code. Okay, so, so that's certain evidences in this, in this similarity. Is this sufficient to prove Darwinian evolution to be true? Um, well, no, it's not. It's not at all conclusive. Uh, because of the fact that a similarity between animal forms, um, it might mean that they derive from one another by a, a natural process. It might also mean that there was some intelligent being who was just using a common design. Um, so, you know, if, if, I, if I see um, a Camaro on the road, and I and I see a Ford, a Ford Taurus, and and I look, and, and I'm like, okay, they've got similar parts to, to one another, and and the mechanics are basically the same. Um, 
does that mean that over a long period of time, the Ford Taurus produced the Camaro? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it, it could have happened. Right. It could have happened by merely natural processes, um, if nature has that power. But it could also have been that that you have a designer who has an idea that that that, that there's a similar idea um, that that idea is refined over time and made more perfect, or there's just variations on that one idea that the designer has a variation that he wants to implement varies different types of cars that he wants to produce, one more directed to efficiency, the other more directed to speed, frankly. So, I mean, this it's, it's is the way right. it is with technology. Um, you know, a computer look, looks very different from a cell phone, but the cell phone is, is ultimately a derivative of, of the computer, right? <laughs> technology that's uh, down the road from, from the computer. Right. So what I'm saying is that, that that's also a possibility when we see the similarity among animals, um, that it could mean that an intelligent designer decided that he wanted to make a lot of variations on one theme. Um, you know, even musical composers like, like to do this. We know that intelligent minds like to do this. So, uh, so it's not conclusive. Okay. Right, right. It's it, it's not at all. Um, I guess then we would need to look at this random mutation and natural selection is is kind of the next step here. And and we've all seen you know the the chapter in our biology textbook that looks at the the moths on the tree. You know the the soot covered tree yeah. and the ones the moths that were darker survived because they blended in, and so the ones right. that were lighter they died out because they were eaten by right. the birds. That's right. That's natural selection. That happens. That's true. Um, but could that explain all the rest of the natural selection that is proposed as the theory of life? Right, right. So, you know, if, if, we, if we see all this similarity among the animal, um, for instance, we, we have to ask ourselves, is, is that similarity produced by random mutation and natural selection, the cause that Darwin proposes? And, you know, Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and he observed the finches there. The Galapagos Islands are many different islands and there were different species of finches. And there was some, some islands that, that went through a drought and they're, you know, the finches are eating seeds and some finches um, were, were not able to break into the seeds because they, they were harder. So some of the seeds were harder than others. And it was only the finches with the bigger beaks they were able to break through the hard seeds. And when there was a drought and there was not a lot of seeds being produced, um, the finches with the smaller beaks were dying out and the bigger finches were living mm -hmm. and eventually just had only finches with big beaks, you know. Um, and so this is right. for Darwin, this was like certain evidence that maybe nature can pull this off. Um, so <clears throat> we're just going to, to look at, at various things that have to happen that have to be true of nature or random mutation and natural selection to be able to produce all the the diversity of biological form that we see around us one of the things that we would expect to test this theory and this is this is how science works by the way um darwin proposes a hypothesis that a process of random mutation and natural selection is able to diversify biological form. And 
if his theory is true, it's going to predict certain things. It's going to predict that, that we're going to find certain things in nature, right? And then the scientists go out and say, we need to test this hypothesis. Let's go out and see if, if nature actually is the way that this theory predicts. One of the predictions is that there has to be a great continuity between um, various life forms. What I mean is, is like if you if you look at, at all the living things, you th think of the, think of that uh, iconic diagram of, of like the the hunched over ape, and then he's slowly standing up, and then you got a man. Oh, yeah. You know, you know. I mean, that's right. sort of what what uh, you would expect to find throughout all of nature. That that basically there's there's a continuum amongst all living things. If you start with the this, the a protozoa or a bacterium, you can make a little connection between the next most complex thing, the next one, next one, next one, next one, all the way till you get to, to man. Um, the basically there's the differences between them, those those different sections is very small. Um, you know, the 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 famous missing link. That's one thing that right. we would expect to to find. And um, and we would we would also expect to find that it's very easy to change living things. That it's very easy to introduce changes such that they start to develop new functions. Um, you think of the fish, you know, sprouting a leg and then crawling up onto the sand, you know, um, in order to obtain some sort of survival advantage or um, sprouting a wing and, and, and starting to flap around and, and fly. We would expect that the genetic code of a fish would easily allow for it to sprout wings or or take on new functions over time by the modification of its genetic code. Well, what is it that we actually discover when we look at the um, the components of living things? And I'm talking about all living things. What we find is is that um, yeah, life forms are, are not at all happy to being pushed around. Um, they, they are very, very set in what they are, and there are very strict boundaries for what living things are. They're not the sort of gooey, amorphous stuff that, that you can easily mess with, kind of like Play-Doh, and shape into what, whatever you want. Um, but, but rather, there are very strict uh, boundaries that exist between different types of things. And between those boundaries, there is an immense gap that cannot be bridged by genetic modifications, that these life forms do not allow themselves to be changed into other things. So we have, since the time of Darwin, we have been able to investigate living things to an immense detail, unimaginable um, in Darwin's time. So. Um, if, if what he was saying was true, uh, we would, we would expect for us to, to be able to nudge uh, a life form and it would easily transition to being another type of life form. Um, what we find instead is that, that you push a life form, you push it, push it, push it, and it either dies, um, or it mutates into something that is bizarre and, and not functional. Um, so 
I just want to look at, at some of the, the evidence that has come forth uh, that shows that it's, this is not the way nature works. The way Darwin is portraying nature is not actually the way nature works, the biological world works. Um, <clears throat> so as far as the fixation in species that I was talking about, um, there, there have been a lot of uh, breeding that has been done. Just at the level of breeding, instead of like tinkering with the DNA, what about breeding? How far can you go with breeding? I want to quote from a book called The New Biology. It says the following, between 1800 and 1878, crossbreeding increased the sugar content of sugar beets from 6% to 17%. But 50 years of sub subsequent experiments produce no further increases. All experienced breeders recognize the constraints. Luther Burbank says, I know from my experience that I can develop a plum half an inch long or one two and a half inches long with every possible length in between, but I am willing to admit that it is hopeless to try to get a plum the size of a small pea or one as big as a grapefruit. So you, you keep trying to breed, 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 push in the direction, but there's there's a hard limit on either side that's, that's placed there by nature itself. And this plum is not willing to change into everything, to anything, you know. You reach right. a barrier and you can't get across it. Um, so if Darwin's theory were true, there would be no barrier. Everything would be fluid. You could keep pushing, 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 and it would change into another thing. It would change into many different things. But that's that's just not the way it is. Right. Um, so, that, so there are that's there are upper a, limits in the in the code or in the DNA or whatever of the living thing, whether it's a plum or a human or an ape or a bat. There's there's limits there, and for th for that to jump from one species or kind to another is next to impossible statistically. It's or impossible. completely impossible. It's completely, it's not possible. I mean, this is, this guy is saying, he says, it's hopeless. It can't happen. It can't happen. Okay. We've tried everything. And that, that's at the level of breeding. So you're just isolating different types of plums, the bigger plums, the, the plants producing bigger plums, okay, to, to get the bigger ones or the plants producing smaller plums. Um, so they've tried that at the level of breeding. But scientists have also okay. done, done it at the level of DNA, and they've done something called saturation mutagenesis. Saturation mutagenesis. So it's a method of experimentation where you get into the, the genetic code and you modify the genetics in all possible ways. This is what was done with the famous uh, fruit fly experiment, where, where you, you, have, you try to... to genetically modify fruit, way, fruit flies in every way possible and see what you get. Are, are we going to get fruit flies turning into a different species of, of fly? Um, are, are, are we going to get the house fly? You know, can we produce a house fly from a fruit fly? Right. Um, yeah, so here's, here's what I say in, um, in my book of, about this. Two, two German geneticists starting in 1979, executed saturation mutagenesis experiments on fruit flies. 
What this means is they isolated the small subset of genes that specifically regulate embryonic development and mutated one or more of those genes in different fruit fly embryos until eventually they had mutated all of them. Most of the mutants perished as deformed larvae long before achieving reproductive age. Others survived and had major changes, but all such changes were deleterious. Some fruit flies had no eyes, others had legs growing out of their heads, and so others had wings deformed in such a way that they could not fly. None of them turned into a new species with greater functionality. But as Meyer points out, we should not expect new and better animals to develop from introducing random mutations into the embryonic development. The reason is that the egg to embryo process is delicate and complex, that every, with every part needing to be in its proper place at the right time, performing its assigned function, for the results be correct. If you introduce changes at one stage and do not compensate for that change at other stages, then you will ruin the entire process. The only way to make a beneficial change would be to accompany that change with corresponding changes at every stage. Evolution cannot do this, though, since it works by gradual changes, which is the same as saying that it works by single changes. This situation leads to the great Darwinian paradox. Animals do not tolerate mutations at the beginning of their development, but that is the only time that they can be changed substantially. They do tolerate mutations after they have developed, but such mutations can only in induce minor changes. The empirical evidence then seems to clearly indicate that large-scale macroevolution is impossible. And I, I don't know if that if all that makes sense. And um, I think I send you a link to a video about how to build a worm um, that gives an illustration of this. And, and that is this: if you want major changes major evolutionary changes, then what you need to do is change the genetics at the very beginning of the development of an embryo. But what the scientists have found is when you do that with the fruit flies, you start tinkering with the genetics in the larva stage, in the egg stage, then you get freaks. You, 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 don't, you don't get like these wonderful permutations, um, but, but there's like, like a continuum where you keep pushing into one side, pushing, pushing, pushing. Then you just get dead fruit flies. You get freaky, freaky fruit flies. <laughs> that's a that's a tongue twister. <laughs> freaky <laughs> fruit flies on, on one side until finally they're just all dead. They don't survive. And then you go to the other direction. Right. You get more freaky fruit flies, and then and then they're they're dead. But you don't right. get some new species. Yeah, interesting. So so. In this case, you know, it, it, it may be possible that there are gene mutations and defects, and we see this all the time. Um, but those those defects usually mean that, like you said, the the animal dies or is is such that natural selection then would wipe it out because it wouldn't have any uh, ability to eat or reproduce or whatever. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and this, this is <clears throat> contrary to what we would expect if Darwin's theory is true. So another thing that I, that I want to point out in, uh, along these lines is that from Darwin's perspective, if, if life is just all a continuum, then the history of life would work like this. You would start with the simplest of life forms that would be very, very similar. And slowly but surely over time, the fossil record of what you would find is a branching out and a greater diversification. 
from the lowest of the taxonomical categories. You would start the beginning with just one species of life and slowly branch out to another species, to another species. Then finally, you can have a genus, you know, and then over time, you get multiple genera, and then you would have families, then you would have classes, orders, phyla, you know, kingdoms, all the different taxonomical categories um, would, would slowly but surely appear over time. That's what you would expect to find in the fossil record, going from the lowest taxonomical category, where everything's almost basically the same, to greater branching out and diversification over time. Very gradually, very continuously, very smoothly. This is what we would, we would expect to find. But when now, now that we know what's in the fossil record, um, after, after Darwin, and he, he kind of knew something about this, is not that at all. I did mention that you get less complex to more complex, but we do not find that the, the species slowly branching the genera, slowly branching in the family, slowly branching in the classes. But what we find rather uh -huh. is explosion um, in the taxonomical category, especially what's called the Cambrian explosion. And there's also something of a plant explosion. So in other words, in the pre-Cambrian era, in the fossil record, you just have sponges very, very basic life forms. And you would expect to find slowly branching out into more complex life forms. It's not what you find. What you find is all of a sudden in the Cambrian period, which is like a pulse in the fossil record, it's just a, a narrow window of the fossil record. What you find is all of a sudden out of nowhere appear all these different types of animal phyla. Basically all the different body mm. plans, um, except for one that we know today appeared in a very narrow window of, of biological time called the Cambrian period. And that's why it's referred to as the Cambrian explosion. So instead of us getting species turning into genera and turning into families, orders, classes, and so on, you have some sponges, and then all of a sudden, boom, you jump up to this, this all, all, all of these different phyla, all of these different body plants appearing out of nowhere. So. Yeah. That, that is a, not a bottom-up um, progression in the fossil record as predicted by, by Darwin. It's a top-down. So what you do is you start off with great diversification in the fossil record. And then within those great differences, then you have other animals develop, those lower taxonomical categories. So that's, that's just the opposite of, of what Darwin predicted. And... Um, that alone kind of falsifies his theory. Very interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard about that. That was uh, that. That seems to at least imply some sort of intervention in some sort of creation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. again, I'm trying to be as as uh, uh, fair as possible to people who are uh, who believe in evolution here, but there's there's something that happened there. It has to be. Yeah, you you have just tons of different designs of animals appearing, um, and uh -huh. it's it's clear there that, that nature is not producing them. Um, yeah, or we have no reasonable expectation for for nature to produce them. Um, it it contradicts the huh. predictions of Darwin. So another thing we we have to look at is is this. Um, assumption that, that Darwin took or he got an idea from, from Malthus about, 
and that is the ruthless competition that he expected to find in nature. What the engine that drives evolution in his mind is the competition for resources. Um, like what I explained about the finches, they don't have sufficient uh, beaks to get to the harder seeds and nourish themselves. And it's the bigger birds who get the, have the, with the harder beaks who, who get the resources. So Darwin saw nature as uh, red in tooth and claw, as, as the expression goes. I think that might be a poem from Tennyson. I can't remember. Um, and that, that animals, basically what you have in the natural world is multiple species of plants and animals all going for the same thing, all going for the same resource. And as a result, only some of them are able to get the resource and the others die out. And the ones who get it, they, they have a survival advantage. Therefore, they're superior um, and they evolve. They're part of the process of evolution. So what has happened since the time of Darwin is we've analyzed the, um, the state of nature and, and we're able to say whether or not animals are in a great state of competition or not. And this is, this is for me, is something very interesting, um, Andrew, because it, it ties into our discussion last time um, about, about the order that God has placed in the universe. Um, you know, if, if, there, if there is a God, we would expect there would be a great harmony amongst the animals and the plants, um, that they would somehow have a symbiotic relationship, they would work together, uh, they would get along, they would occupy space in a very harmonious way. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, a dog-eat-dog world. I don't know if that's the best expression, but <laughs> it, would, You're right. it wouldn't be like that in nature. So <clears throat> what, what we find is that nature, in fact, employs many strategies to prevent competition. And I, I took that, uh, I took this yeah. from this, this book, The New Biology, that I quoted earlier. The authors, they point out um, that nature often isolates geographically species that could eliminate one another, um, that life forms that do live in the same habitat, they occupy different ecological niches. So they have different diets, they have different periods of activity, um, they introduce different changes in the environment. Uh, so Here's a quote. Among the most thoroughly documented principles in the science of ecology is the dictum that two species never occupy the same niche. So they're going after different yeah. things. They're, they're not in competition. They're harmoniously occupying the same space. There's mutual sharing of resources, space, light, water, and food, so that as many as possible can survive, rather than the pursuit of mutual elimination. We, we don't see... Uh, plants and animals seeking to eliminate one another. We see periodic migration of birds, fish, mammals, and insects to avoid competition. We see the sequential flowering of plants to avoid competition in attracting pollinators. Even predators are kind to their prey by never eliminating a species and also maintaining with it a dynamic equilibrium. You know, you sent, you sent on to me the after our last podcast, that video about the wolves in Yellowstone Park okay. and, and how, you know, when, when the, the deer did not have their predator there, um, then things kind of fell apart and the resources of Yellowstone Park it turned out that, that having the wolves there restored the balance 
and that harmonious equilibrium. And the, the wolves are not going to eliminate the deer, um, but they're going to make it possible for the vegetation, the plants, um, to flourish, and also for, for the deer to flourish at the same time. So that was just an example mm -hmm. of, of this principle. Then um, also symbiotic relationships between animals, such that two species have a mutual interdependence. This interdependence is even found between the whole of the plant kingdom, which produces the oxygen needed by animals, and that of the animal kingdom, which produces carbon dioxide needed by plants. And this is why ecologists are so worried about the elimination of species, you know, like the endangered species. They know that if you take one animal or one plant out of an area, then it might disrupt the harmony that exists. They just assume there's a great harmony here. They know there's going to be a great harmony. It's not right. competition that's red in tooth and claw, um, but there's a symbiotic relationship. If you want remove one piece out of it, things could fall apart and animal plant life could really suffer. Right. Or on the flip side, you, you bring in an, an invasive species like, you know, Asian carp into the Mississippi River and all of a sudden that explodes yeah. and it takes over the whole thing and that's chaos. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that, that whole point about the geographical isolation of, of some species um, that if they, were, if they were put together, they, they wouldn't be harmonious. If you just leave things where they are, right. it, it works out well. Right. Right. Okay. It's almost like there's a plan there or something. I don't know. Yeah. Looking a little bit fishy. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so one more assumption we, we have to look at, Andrew, and this is, this is the last one. I know this is a long podcast, but um, yeah, this, no, it's is, good. this is like one of my favorite topics and something I've just read a lot about. So I find it really fascinating. Um, yeah, it is. And, yeah. So this um, this last assumption concerns the mutations that take place in genetic code. You know, as I, as I mentioned before, Darwin didn't understand genetic code. And so people who came after Darwin and learned about genes, they kind of modified his theory and, and just simply specified what random mutation meant. Um, and they modified what, what is meant by random mutation they say it means the modification of genetic material. And we know that in the transcription of DNA, when DNA is copied, um, that uh, over time, you know, sometimes the copy is, the copying doesn't take place perfectly. And the neo-Darwinists, um, they speculate that the mutations that take place, the, the bad copying that sometimes takes place, it's very rare, but it does happen. You get these natural mutations in DNA, that they um, create new function, that, that you can modify DNA and over time you're going to get new function in plants and animals. So in order to test this, we have to investigate certain concrete cases of evolution where we, we actually know genetic code has been changed um, and see if those genetic code is the modification of genetic code actually uh, provides a survival advantage. We've been able to, or the scientists have been able to do a lot of research in this area. They've um, dug into the genetics of, of animals, and um, especially in the cases where they've uh, speculated that they might have a survival advantage. What have they found? What, what, is, what have their 
their um, investigations revealed, they have revealed that sometimes random mutations do create a survival advantage that give an animal the capacity to survive when the animal that doesn't have the mutation does not survive. But at the same time, when you have that situation, the animal that survives gains its survival advantage through a breaking of its genetic code. In other words, the animal that survived had less function in its genetics than the animal that died. Um, that's why sometimes people have referred to evolution as not a theory of the survival of the fittest, but the arrival of the fittest. <laughs> it's just a way of saying that, that those mm -hmm. who survive are not really the fittest, or that what you mean by the fittest is simply those survive. It's not really those who have better genetics. So let me, let me quote Michael Behe again. He says, the amazing but in retrospect unsurprising fact established by the diligent work of many investigators in laboratory evolution over decades is that the great majority of even beneficial, positively selected mutations damage an organism's genetic information, either degrading or outright destroying functional coded elements. So huh. sometimes, um, you know, uh, an animal's genetics can be modified and some function is destroyed, but it gives them a survival advantage. Uh, he gives the, the example of uh, polar bears. So polar bears um, had a genetic modification that gave them a white coat, um, which, you know, it doesn't, it's not a breaking of genes. Well, I guess it's breaking of the color gene. Um, but they also had <clears throat> a, a breaking of genes that allowed them to be fatter, um, that, that, to, to have a, a fatter mass. And this gave them a survival advantage in the Arctic uh, to, to be able to survive in colder weather, you know. So uh, right. Dr. B, he, he takes the example of like uh, sometimes, you know, in, in, in the old days when you have the ships and they're being batted about. And in order to survive, they have to throw off the cargo. And, and when they throw off the cargo, it lightens the ship and they're able to get through the storm. Um, this is kind of what's happening sometimes throwing off some of the genetic code and breaking function gives animals a survival advantage. He says, degrading machinery can be useful for some purposes, perhaps because its function is unneeded at the time, and so the scrapped machine doesn't waste energy, or because in changed circumstances, the product the machine made is now detrimental or some other reason. But natural selection can't build a coherent new system. So we see in nature examples of genes being broken and in providing a survival advantage. But what we know that random mutation natural selection can't do is they, it can't rebuild the function. We, we have no examples whatsoever of random mutation actually building some sort of function in an animal. And this is just simply what we would expect if, if the animal, if the genetic code is perfect for that animal. 
Um, so if you if you have a machine that's absolutely perfect and it's perfectly designed, then you know if you take anything away from it, you're you're going to take away from its perfection. There's in other words, it's at the apex of its fineness, and you, you there's right. no wiggle room for making it better for what it is. And, and what we're discovering is right. that uh, polar, uh, like like the, the the bears are best for what it means to be a bear, or dogs are best for what it means to be a dog. Um, and if you're going to change your genetic code, there's only one way to go, and that is down. You're, you're going to you're going to modify them, and in modifying them, you're going to make them worse necessarily than they are for what they're made to be. This is what you would expect if they were actually designed to be what they are. You know, right? That's why you have on some very uh, very specific dog breeds. There's a lot of other health problems. Maybe. Maybe a, a hunting dog is yeah. very, very keen eyesight or something, and is very docile, yeah. but it has really bad hips. I don't know. I'm making this all up, but there's yeah. there's lots of cases like that. Yeah, I mean the dachshund is is just like a hot dog, and they can hardly walk. Um, it, it, they're they're right. genetically modified or they're bred to have that shape and the floppy ears. But uh, I wouldn't put one out in the wild you know <laughs> i don't think they would do very no. well <laughs> no yeah uh it's fascinating yeah um so let me let me just give this quote about the polar bear the polar bear is a variety of brown bear that quote unquote evolved to survive in arctic cold in fact it can hybridize with alaskan brown bear how did it do that B shows that genes for regulating fat and for metabolizing cholesterol became broken or blunted. And this had a side effect of keeping the bears warm in cold climates, changing their coat color while permitting them to survive on fatty diets of steel. Darwin's mechanism did not create anything new. It broke things, but in the case of the polar bear, it worked out. Doesn't so it? that's all that um, that we're able to observe is that the random mutation is capable of producing new function. Or, sorry, is not capable of producing new function, but it is capable of breaking, and sometimes that provides a survival advantage. Um, and this is why you know the evolutionists are never able to provide any real evidence of macroevolution. They're, they're not able to show any concrete examples of, of new function coming um, by somehow <clears throat> genetic code being modified and in such a way that you you have more complexity in the area of functionality. Um, and this is not surprising, Andrew. I mean, once we know that, that all living things work on DNA and the DNA is computer code, we should not expect that a single change, single changes that takes place over discrete periods of time are going to be able to produce new function. What you have to do is you have to write new code. Um, you know, I used to be in the computer programming and, and what you learn in computer programming is that mm -hmm. unless all of the instructions are perfectly lined up, then your, your program's not gonna run properly. It's one little mistake and your program's messed up. And if you want to add new function, you're gonna have to write a new subroutine. You know, you're, you have to write a whole body a new code. You can't just change a few characters here and there slowly over time. 
and, and expect to get new function. Right. You need an intelligent mind to introduce that new function. Right. The trans the transition period is a broken period and then it'll just stop working. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. As you're as you're designing that code, if you just wanted to step in and say, let's run this code, it's not gonna run. It's not gonna run. It won't run. So, yeah. So or it'll run that, badly. Yeah. Yeah, depending on the the importance of the of the subroutine that you're writing. Uh, right. Uh, so. Well, that's fascinating, Father. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, at the end of the day, you know, if if we really give Darwin Darwin's um, theory uh, a, a nice run and, and treat it fairly and look at all the evidence and so on, we we have to conclude that uh, random mutation and natural selection are not capable of doing what he hoped they would be capable of doing. Um, and we, we are blessed today to have all this information about the biological world. And, um, you know, I mean, Michael Behe, for instance, he tries to find what's what he calls the edge of evolution and say, how much can evolution do? Can it, can it produce new species, new genera? Um, you know, we, we know that, that animal breeders can produce new species of dogs, for instance. Um, how far can, mm -hmm. can evolution go? Um, he concludes, I think, that, that the most maybe new families, I think he might have revised that over time now that we have more information about the DNA, maybe new genera, and that's as far as it, it can get. It can't go up to the higher taxonomical categories. Wow. And all that said, Father, we haven't even talked about how in the mind of an evolution uh, evolutionist that the human consciousness exists. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other set can of worms that we're not even going to go down, uh, but we're right. just looking at it purely on the natural level. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> how do you go from, from an ape to an intelligent human being? Um, you know, the, the, I was, I was once, uh, I, I put the story in my book, but I was once on a ferry boat going between two islands in the Philippines and they, they had, um, on there, the movie playing the return of the planet of the apes. And what, what happened yep. is they got this lab where they got these apes. I don't know if you've seen this movie. I don't think I even finished watching it, but, <laughs> um, because the boat landed, <laughs> but, um, you know, they're, they're messing with chemicals. And the, it turns out that this one ape develops intelligence just by receiving this chemical. And then the, one of the workers takes it home and starts to educate it and stuff. And, and the implication is that the difference between animals and, and men is just the chemicals that are in our brain. Um, so it's just right. basing, reducing us to merely material things. Uh, but the fact is that, that intelligence is a spiritual faculty. Consciousness is a, is a spiritual thing. And, to, and that's, that's almost an even bigger gap to bridge than between non-life and life, between the material and the spiritual. And that cannot be accounted for by merely material processes. Um, so, I mean, basically, from, from my perspective, Andrew, is, is just getting back to the question of what evolution is, is capable of, because I know you, you were asking me about this um, before we started this podcast, about is it possible that God infused a human soul into a highly evolved ape? What I'm saying is the evidence, the scientific evidence, shows that evolution 
is the Darwinian mechanism is not capable of producing a highly evolved ape, a, a humanoid form of, of making that bridge that between us and, and the ape, there is a genetic void. That even if our DNA is very similar, you're going to have to reprogram the DNA in order to get a human-like form. And to reprogram DNA, you need an intelligent mind. There's the, it's the only way to do it. It's not like our DNA is just next to it. And it's like, oh, we're, it's 98% similar. Fine, 98% similar. But to get the 2% difference, right. you have to reprogram the DNA. There's no right. way. It's, a, it's still gonna... a really big gap. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Still, it's an immense gap that can only be bridged by a purposeful, intelligent mind. Right. Father, this has been fascinating. And yeah, like you said, we, we did go over our time that we normally do, but this was worth it. Um, and I can tell that you're fascinated by this topic yeah. because uh, <laughs> there's just a wealth of information there. So thank you. Thank you for yeah. getting this all prepared for us. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nature, um, there's certain things that, that it does on its own and there's certain things that it does not. And one thing it does not do on its own is produce the great variety of biological diversity that we see before us. And that, that has, we, we have to say the only cause, the only adequate cause for that um, is someone really, really smart and really, really powerful. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Father, thank you so much. Looking forward to the next time. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.